Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Um, just want to recognize um, David and Marsha Jones. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. We have uh, prayed for you both as a congregation. Um, we love you all. And it is an, an absolute blessing to see you here today, brother. Really, really is. Um, for those of you who don't, don't know, uh, David uh, Jones um, is battling cancer. And um, I assure him and his family covet your prayers. Uh, and please let us continue to be praying for them. Longtime missionary, got, to, got a chance to meet David many years ago when we were at McElwain together. Um, and he's always been a, a gift to me and his passion for the Lord and for the Muslim people. And so continue to pray for them. Uh, Romans chapter 8, for the benefit of those that have not been here, we've been going through Romans chapter 8. Some call it the greatest chapter in the Bible. So I want to be careful uh, there. I, I don't know if I'd call it the greatest, but if I came to your bedside and you were dying, I would not read the first few chapters of Chronicles. Uh, that, uh, you know, I would probably whip out Romans chapter 8 and read it to you. So in terms of application, maybe, and its efficacy in our lives, perhaps Romans chapter 8 might be a little bit more appropriate than First Chronicles. But I do want to say that all scripture is God-breathed. And so I don't want to exalt one uh, portion of scripture over another, but there you have it. And as we've gone through Romans 8, we've looked at no condemnation, and we've looked at certainly uh, the difference between the Christian mind and the non-Christian mind. And today we're going to look at what difference does the Holy Spirit make in our lives. And so we're going to look at that. Let's begin at verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 13. Hear now the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not Submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead would also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not or we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we have come here today to hear from you. And so I pray that your people do hear from you. Holy Spirit, we've talked a lot about you already today in Sunday school, and now um, we're about to do it again. And to be quite honest, Holy Spirit, I feel insufficient to do so. Your work in our life is so magisterial, so necessary, so important, but I cannot communicate it fully to your people. And so now more than ever, I rely on you to give your people the wisdom from this text that you would have them to learn. Whatever the big takeaway is, and I'm sure it'll be different for all of us, may you lodge it deep in their hearts that they might be completely changed as a result of it. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, it's kind of difficult to talk about the Holy Spirit, in part because um, there are times when I feel distant from him. And in our secular world and in our materialistic world, it's kind of difficult to stand in front of a a group of people, even Christians, and talk about the Holy Spirit because uh, the Holy Spirit is so foreign from us. A couple of things I want to say from the bat about the Holy Spirit that's important. The first is this, is that the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's a person. It's a person. It's not a force. It's not like the metachlorians are high in us. No, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. It's a person that we're in fellowship with. Now, the first time in my life I came in contact with anything dealing with the Holy Spirit was through a Pentecostal meeting. Those of you that have ever been to one, people were running up and down the aisles and, and uh, speaking in tongues and flipping and being slain in the Spirit, and I couldn't wait to leave. And I said to myself, if this is what the Holy Spirit is, I want nothing of it. And so for many years, I didn't pay attention to the Holy Spirit, which means that I fell into the opposite extreme, which is this. I completely ignored the Holy Spirit's work in all of our lives. Because the second thing I want to tell you is that the Holy Spirit is God, equal to Jesus and God. It says here in this passage, he's called the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God, making him equal with God. So he shouldn't be ignored. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to not just the life of the Christian, but life in general. And of all the members of the Trinity, it is the most misunderstood, the most um, neglected, and even at times absolutely forgotten. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.4 said this, For we know, brothers, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I want that 
I want you to think about that for a moment because what Paul is saying here is that the Christian gospel is not a gospel merely of words. In other words, you and I, if our gospel devolves just into arguments or words or teachings without full reliance on the power of the Spirit, we will not have a gospel. Our gospel will be meaningless. And I could tell you one application of this right now. We are in a very secular age. Every statistic I look at in the church shows that our numbers are declining. More and more young people are not in church. They're leaving church. More and more people are leaving church. Several months ago, I read an article about England. And in England, at least more than half of the people in England and in Ireland no longer identify as Christians. Why is that significant to us? Because we're usually 10 years behind them. Which in some parts of this country, we're already behind. And if we have a gospel that's only word-based and sacrament-based, but isn't infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, then sooner or later, the vast majority of our children, the vast majority of our neighbors, the vast majority of people that we know won't be Christian at all. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't optional for believers. It's actually very, very needed. We will have zero impact in the world if we as a church are not dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do life and ministry. And so the question is, what does that impact look like? Well, verse 9 through 13 is one of the most, interest, uh, one of the most integral aspects of uh, teaching when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do very briefly is walk through this passage and show you how important the Holy Spirit is in your life and in ministry to the world. The first thing I want you to see is in verse number 9, the indwelling of the Spirit. Paul says here, you, however, so remember Paul already talked about the, the fall of the Christian mind, that the Christian mind does not submit to God, that the Christian mind does not, cannot do anything to please God. Then he contrasts that to the life of the believer, and he says, you, however, meaning the Christian, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's what Paul is saying that all of us need to understand. Each and every one of us inside here today, at the point of salvation, we get the Holy Spirit. It's in us. It indwells in us. And I want you to notice that Paul phrases it in the negative. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, he could have phrased that in the positive, but this is a rhetorical uh, device. And here's why that rhetorical advice matters. Because Paul is trying to emphasize a life without the power of the Holy Spirit is a life of great deficiency. Yesterday, for about seven to eight hours, we lost water. Anybody else? Who else inside? Yes. So what does that mean? I see Danita's hand going up. Yes, us. Us. Now, what did that mean? I'll tell you what that meant. That meant we couldn't take showers. That meant we couldn't use the bathroom. At least we weren't supposed to use the bathroom, but nobody paid attention to that. It also meant that we couldn't use the water to wash our dishes, to drink. And at the end of the night, right before it came on, I looked at my kids. I said, this is incredibly inconvenient, isn't it? And they said, yes, Dad. 
it's incredibly inconvenient. Because it is. Don't miss what Paul is saying. If we don't have the spirit, it's not that it's just inconvenient. It's detrimental. It's detrimental. That's why he says in this passage that if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. In other words, it's not just inconvenient for us not to have the spirit. It's not just inconvenient for us not to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul says that it's more than that. It's actually detrimental to the Christian life. Because to not have the Spirit of God coursing through us and in us is to be left without any hope. One person put it like this, to try to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit is to try to keep an oversized beach ball underwater. In other words, it's absolutely pointless. But Paul also points us to the positive aspect of having the Spirit in us. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, um, of Christ does not belong to him. So the positive aspect of that is if you do have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to Christ. That the, the glory of the gospel is that Christ dwells within you. That's a power that you have. Beloved, the power of God dwells in you, and that creates a huge difference in our lives. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, by the way, if you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. But notice, he, Ch Francis Chan says this, that if you notice, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you are a Christian, and you don't notice a marked difference in your life from your unbelieving friends, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in us, everything changes. This morning we sang a hymn twice in our sing-song time. And it's called Spirit of the Living God. And listen to the words because it's important. It talks about what the Spirit of God does in us. It says, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? That means simply this, that if you have the Spirit of God in you, he should break you, your selfishness and your pride. He should melt you. He should create a tenderness in your heart. He should mold you. In other words, he should shape what you do and how you do it. He should fill you. In other words, you should be concerned about what he wants you to do. That's the message of the gospel. That if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, everything about your life should be radically different. Because now you belong to Christ. You have a guest, a new guest, living in your home. My wife and I, uh, from time to time, uh, we, we entertain people at our home. Sometimes there are people from outside that are coming in. And, and whenever a guest is coming, guess what? The house changes. I mean, we go into full cleaning mode. I mean, stuff gets cleaned. We have to buy stuff. Like, our whole house changes because someone is coming to visit us. 
And, and it's actually quite funny because when that person comes, you know, everybody kind of changes. You know, we stop snapping at each other. It's, things seem less annoying. And it's not like we're trying to put on a face for anybody. No, 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 that's, a, that's not it at all. But what it is is that we understand that when someone comes into our home, things cannot remain the same. You understand that naturally. Well, what Paul is saying here is when the Holy Spirit comes in us, things cannot remain the same. God now is in you. And because of that, things by necessity have to change. The old ways by necessity have to be put aside. And now we have to have a new way of living and thinking. And the question is, Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, has that change happened? Now look, the change is not automatic. You and I know it takes time. But do you see measurable growth in your life as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? And Paul plainly says that if you don't see that, chances are you probably don't have the Spirit in you. And you need to pray and ask the Lord to give you the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Notice the second thing. The Spirit gives you life. Verse number 10. It says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And then in verse number 11, he uses the same turn of phrase about the Spirit giving life. It says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now notice the connection between resurrection and life. Notice that connection between death and life and then resurrection and life. That's important and here's why. I've been to a lot of funerals and I've never seen a dead person rise. Now I don't say that to be flippant but if a dead person were to rise and we're at a funeral Everyone's running out of the funeral home, right? Anyone that stays there knows for a fact that something is, has gone terribly wrong. So when the Bible mentions the whole reality of death coming, coming from the dead or us being dead, now we're being made alive, it's talking about an uncommon power, an unusual power that's now in the life of the Christian that makes everything different. It's talking about the power of God enlivening the Christian. So now we act and think and live differently. David Platt one time uh, in a sermon mentioned that he's astonished how much Christians do without the awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And I agree with him. Think of how many things we do without the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I've been married 15 years. Praise the Lord. Thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for the relationship I have with her. And I remember the first time her and I, uh, when we were married, the very first thing we did was we knelt and we prayed. And as we knelt and prayed, one of the things we asked the Lord to do is to help us in our marriage, to bless us, to give us a good marriage, and to use us to bring honor and glory to him. You know what's interesting? And this is to my shame. 
I can't remember the last time I prayed that prayer. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Because I know a little something about marriage now. I know what makes my wife happy, and so I do that. I've read enough books. And so the temptation, if you've been married a long time, is to not rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in your marriage. Now, we should, shouldn't we? You know, I haven't been a pastor terribly long, but I've been preaching now for a good bit. And you know, the temptation for me is to use all my tools, my Greek, my, my understanding of biblical theology, my understanding of rhetoric. And it's very easy for me to stand up here and just deliver a sermon without ever acknowledging the power of the Holy Spirit and my deep need for it. I have children, I have four of them, for those that you don't, don't know. And when every time we had a child, I remember taking our child and praying and saying, God, please help me to love and serve this child. Help me to, to be a blessing to this child. Help me to love and, and do everything that I need to do for this child. What was I doing? I was relying on the Spirit. But you know what? I've been a parent now for 13 plus years. And you know what the temptation is? To not pray that prayer because I know a little something about parenting now. Let me ask you a question, Christian. What is it that you can do without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? You could probably do a lot. You could probably go to your job and rock it. You could probably make your spouse happy. You could probably even raise your children. But according to Paul, he says, and notice what he says in verse number 10, anything we do with the body is dead. In other words, anything we do in the flesh without full reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit is nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. That's the power of the gospel. That's why we rely on the power of the Spirit, because he gives life, life. We can't give that life to ourselves. We need it. You know, uh, Scott mentioned it today, but one of the things that I often hear people say when they come and visit CVPC is that they can tell that the Spirit of the Lord is here. Now, I've never asked them exactly what, that, what they mean by that, but I suspect that what they see is an uncommon power in and among the people here at CVPC. They see you worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. They see you uh, praising the Lord with sincerity of heart. That matters because that doesn't happen by the flesh. It happens through the spirit. But you know what they don't see? They don't see how generous you are to other people. They don't see how you serve the body faithfully and consistently. They don't see how you love people well and how much time you spend with people and all the calls you make and all the visits you make. They don't see that and they don't need to. Because when the Spirit is in full operation, God's people work and serve without looking for any kind of reward for it. That's what Paul is saying here. The Spirit is life. It brings life. 
Now, I want you to see the very last thing the Spirit does, and it's in verse 12 through 13. Paul says that one of the things, and this is one of the most important parts of the Holy Spirit, is that uh, he says in verse number 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And then in verse number 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want you to underline, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Because that's important. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? It is to put to death the sins in our body. It is to kill sin. Now, us modern types, we don't like that idea. We don't like the idea of fighting and warring. We get a little nervous when people start talking about killing things. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is it put to death sin in our life. The old saints used to call this mortification of the flesh. It's killing sin. Derek Thomas, in his work on this passage, makes this statement. He says, when last in recent memory have you killed a sin? I want you to think about that. When in recent memory have you killed a sin? When in recent memory, those of us that struggle with pornography set about killing the sin of pornography? Killing it. Not just playing with it. Not just saying once in a while. But actually killing that sin. When was the last time you who gossip said to yourself, you know what, I gossip. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put to death gossip. When was the last time you who are judgmental said to yourself, you know what, I'm judgmental. And I need to do something about that. I need to mortify my judgmentalness because it's killing the body. Paul is talking to each and every one of us. We have sins that we need to put to death. Notice Paul doesn't say to coddle it or make excuses for it. He said flat out, we need to kill it. And so the question is, when was the last time you killed a sin? Put it to death. I think it's an important question for a Christian because if you have the Holy Spirit in you, the Bible says we need to be putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, let me say one more thing on this that I think is important. This is why we in the church need to be careful that we don't redefine sin. We live in a world that redefines sin. Abortion is not called abortion or murder anymore. It's called reproductive rights. Sexual sins of all kinds are not called sexual sins anymore. They're called lifestyle choices. One of the things our world does very successfully is redefine sin to where it's not sin anymore, and then you and I have no impetus in killing it. Now listen to me, church, because this is important. Of course, we don't want to turn people away from the church. And of course, we don't want to alienate people. And of course, we don't want people to unnecessarily feel uh, bad or, or uncared for in the life of the church. But we need to make sure we are calling sin, sin. Because according to Paul, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to work in and through us 
to put to death the deeds of the body. And if we as the church cannot be clear about what sin is, then what are we calling people to kill? What are we calling people to do? Then everything becomes acceptable. We have to understand ultimately what is at stake. And that's why Paul is very clear. The spirit is in us to put to death all of the deeds of our bodies. That's the negative, but I want to end on the positive. One of the ways in which you and I fight sin is through adoration. See, it's one thing for us to kill sin. It's one thing for us to stop doing the things that we're doing, but that's not enough. We need to positively fight sin. And how do we see that in this passage? Notice with me in verse number 12, Paul makes this glorious statement. And I think it's one of the greatest statements ever when you think about dealing with the sin in your life. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Pause. Then what are we a debtor to? If we're not a debtor to the flesh, then that means we are debtors to the spirit. And this is where adoration comes in. It's not enough for us to stop sinning, but we also need to start worshiping God. And that's what Paul is saying here. One of the key aspects of dealing with the sin in our lives is to positively uh, go to God and worship him in spirit and in truth. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Hear that. The love of Christ controls us. Not the fear of God. Not that God's going to send a lightning bolt and hit us, but the actual love of God is what ultimately controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. Here's what Paul's saying. The greatest motivation for us to kill sin in our lives is when we understand the vast, majestic love of God. That when you and I understand what the extravagance, I had a professor, he always used to use the word extravagant. He's like, look at the extravagance of the cross. Look at the extravagance of the cross. In other words, he sent his son to die for you. Look at what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. That is the greatest motivation for us to live righteous, holy lives. See, there's so many people, they spend their entire life just trying to play keep away with sin. That's legalism. We don't, play, we don't just play keep away with our sins, but we also worship the living God. And so, beloved, here in this passage, Paul is telling you, worship. Worship as a means to deal with sin. Now, I know that there's one or two of us in here. You're looking at me and you're saying, Pastor Dennis, I've tried to do that. I've, I've taken my sin before the Lord and more times than I can count, and I keep failing and failing and failing. I've asked the Lord to rid me of my anxiety, or I've asked the Lord to rid me of my addiction to pornography, or I've asked the Lord to deal with a number of sins in my life, and it doesn't seem like he's doing it. What do I do? How do I deal with that? I want to leave you with some gracious words from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. 
And here's the power behind those verses. I want you to remember this because this is so important. I believe that there are some sins that we will take to the grave. There are some sins we will battle with and take it to the grave. And that's why when we read Romans 8, we don't see a God who comes to condemn us, but a God who has a reign of grace. And you inside here today might be a broken reed, a bruised reed, or a smoking flax. You've tried over and over again to deal with the sin, and it's keep seeming like it has the victory over you. I want to encourage you today. There's no condemnation. You will not be separated from the love of God. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will receive life. If not in this life, definitely in the life to come. So Christian, take heart. The Holy Spirit is given to you as a promise and a down payment that one day you will be glorified with him. And so we do not live as those without hope. We live with those who have tremendous hope because we have the power of the Spirit. Father, we thank you so much. Holy Spirit, um, as I said, I, I wish for your people to know how important you are. Because without you, there is no hope. Without you, there's no life. And without you, there's no fighting of sin. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that even though we fail often, you will never let us go. And that you are the down payment of our glorious resurrection. Bless your people now, I pray in Jesus' name.